Well, to catch those who are visiting up a little bit, uh, not that many weeks ago, we began a new sermon series on the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to make our way through that book. And the primary way we're approaching this book is this. What does Paul write to a believer? Someone who doesn't need to be convinced of the truth, someone who doesn't need to be challenged in areas where they are going astray, but someone who needs to be encouraged to live out their faith in the world. And and that's what we want to hear from this book. Last week, we saw how Paul's own story of conversion was an encouragement to those that in seeing his life completely changed, a call to those who especially should know better to change the way that they were living their lives as well. The words are going to be on the screen for chapter 2, which is what we're going to be reading today. But I want to give a strong encouragement to get your pew Bibles out, to open it up, and then keep those Bibles open as we work our way through the text. The joy of going through the whole book is you get to see everything in it. A challenge is you have to address everything in it. And there are going to be some challenging things to address this morning. So if you are looking it up in your pew Bible, it starts on page 1177. And as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at all of chapter 2 this morning. Again, under the inspiration of that Holy Spirit, Paul wrote these words to his beloved friend, Timothy. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of the God our Savior, who desires all people all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gives himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women, with who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I just read 15 verses of our text. 
And of those 15 verses, in preparation for this message, I read many more pages of research, background, and discussion than I normally would. And that is because there have been many books and pages written about this text and the challenges that lie in these verses. I will confess it was a hard message to prepare this week. And I'm sure that you now know, having read through the text, that these words, there are going to be something that will, I think, challenge and be difficult for almost every one of us that is here this morning. But we are challenged to wrestle with these things, to engage with difficult ideas. And in that challenge, I hope that the word of the Lord will speak into our lives. And rather than dismissing words too quickly, we wrestle with what is lying underneath the point of the text. But in order to get there, and where I want to keep the focus is, well, what is the big picture idea that is supported by these smaller issues? And that answer comes very basically at the very beginning of the text when it says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Those are many different words, but in essence, it just boils down to the fact that this chapter is a call to prayer. It is a call to be lifting up and deeply approaching God with great concern for all people. That's what's mentioned in the text. But then when we get to verse 2, it specifically mentions praying for kings and those in authority. Paul was being pragmatic here. He knew that those with political power have a great deal to say about the quality of the lives of Christians at this time and their ability to go forth and to proclaim the hope that they cling to and share in Jesus Christ. Therefore, of all people, we should be praying for them, for wisdom in their roles and for them to be convinced of the truth of the Christian message of hope. Because of this text, I specifically asked Pastor Lucas to, if you notice, pray by name for our president and for our governor. And right from the start, for some, that's the most challenging part of this text. Unfortunately, in today's world, we can get so deeply caught up in the divides of our culture and the separations because of political party. Where if I identify as an R or a D, I have a very difficult time praying for those who have the opposite letter behind their name. And I don't want to pray for them, except for maybe bad things to happen. But that's not what the call of this text is. Well, you say, well, we should pray for the good ones and, and not for the bad ones. This was written at a day and an age literally when Nero was the emperor of Rome, doing all he could to destroy the Christian faith and to literally kill them. So there was no such thing as a good Christian king at the time. Paul knows who he's talking about. But he's saying, for those people, pray. Maybe many of us need to hear that and be challenged in that area, recognizing that our prayers for our leaders are far more significantly and impactful than our comments on social media. 
So lift up our leaders and pray for them because when rulers rule well, then Christians are going to be best equipped to live the lives that we are called to live. He mentions several ways. He says, so therefore we can live godly lives. Don't get confused. That's not a, a goodly life as though, you know, so that we can be good people and just enjoy this life. No, that we can live properly in the presence of God in a right relationship with him. And to do so in a dignified manner. To live godly lives in the presence of other people so what they see in us is the way that God had created us to live from the very beginning, that we have a good reputation and a good standing among those in our society. And that leads to the heart of this text. Verses 3 through 7. Our prayers for all people should center around the fact that God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, when Paul became a believer, it changed everything for his life. From that point on, every decision that he made, everything that he did was centered around the idea of trying to get as many other people that he interacted with to share and understand the great hope of God in Jesus Christ. And in doing that, he was reflecting the heart of the God that he serves as this text says. God wants people to know him. That's why he created us. That's why he sent his son into this world. And while we have fallen short, we recognize that there is only one God. That while there are many other things in this world that can distract us and pull our attention and we give our allegiance to, that in the end, our lives are only lived properly when we understand the truth that there is one God, one creator, who has revealed one way in how to we should live our lives. And when we violate that will, he's given us one opportunity to find restoration and reconciliation through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. God has exclusive claims to our hearts. Jesus has exclusive claim to the means of salvation. But for some, that's the most challenging part of this text. I'm sure that all of us know or have siblings, children, grandchildren, parents, or friends who we deeply love, but don't know that one true God. Through their lives and through their choices and their rebellion, they have decided that, that they can define God for themselves, or having been exposed to the truth of who God is, they have rejected his exclusive claims on their lives. They want options. They want to define God rather than let God define himself. They want to find another mediator besides Christ. And the temptation is to say, well, you know, they're pretty good people. Why stir the pot and point them or talk about God all that much? But the reality is there is no other God. There is no other way. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And while our culture would say, well, that is awfully narrow-minded, 
That's too dismissive of other religions and other things that bring meaning to people's lives. The scripture says there is only one God. Now, praise be to that God that he is a gracious and loving God that hasn't left us in our sin, but has allowed for our reconciliation, our redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. But in order for that truth to be shared, we need to go forth and proclaim that one truth, challenge people's lives with it, and to call them to a right relationship with the God that wants a relationship with them. So, so far in the first seven verses in the text, we've basically been focusing on the what. What are we being called for here? And again, the summary answer to that is is to pray. To pray for all people that they might come to know salvation and the truth. And then in the rest of the text, Paul's now going to turn to explain the how. How are we to worship, to pray our God, to approach the Lord with these prayers in the most effective way? And what are some of the things that will indeed hinder Or slow down that desire of sharing the hope with others. So he starts in verse 8 saying, In every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now to be clear, this isn't uh, saying that only men are allowed to pray. There are many other texts that refer to and specifically encourage women to participate in prayer. Also, this is not saying that when we pray, we have to pray with lifted hands. Again, throughout Scripture, there are many postures that are recommended in prayer. But instead, the emphasis that we need to see in this is that when we pray, men should pray with holy hands, without anger, and with quarreling. Positively, prayers are not to be lifted up lightly. But they should be lifted up with integrity out of godly lives that are already being lived. James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power, and the old King James Version availeth much. But on the flip side, in places like 1 Peter 3.7, it is clear that when we are not living properly, our prayers are hindered. And again, for some, this is the most challenging part of the text. Men especially. How often have we hindered the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ because of our hypocritic lifestyles? How often, because of our anger or quarreling with one another and with uh, the world, enjoying arguments and trying to win and defeat people, have we allowed for, we have silenced our voice in pointing to Christ? How often have we prayed for the sins of others while ignoring our own shortcomings and sins? If we want to be effective witnesses to the world, If we want to accomplish things through our prayers, then we need to be lifting holy hands. Hands of one with, as it said earlier in chapter 1, the ones with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. When we fail to live out of our faith, we hinder the message of hope that we want others to accept. 
Well then, after addressing men and how they are to pray and how their prayers might be hindered, Paul then turns his attention to women in two different ways. Uh, First of all, he addresses women and their attire. And again, let me bring some qualifiers right away as we did with the prayers of men. I don't believe that this text is about the particulars. That if you came this morning with braided hair or some jewelry around your neck, be it gold or pearl, or you are wearing something costly, that you are in violation of this commandment. It's not the particulars that make the point. The, the, the point is itself the point. But that does. But what is the point? To get to the heart of it, let's look at the positive side. Revealed in, in verse 10 that women should adorn themselves first and foremost with good works. That like with men, women who have professed a faith in their Lord Jesus Christ and claim to have a relationship with him, it should be seen in how they live their lives. That is our aim. That is our objective. But that then does get to our negative Those good works can sometimes be hindered or negated when the primary desire for women is for the attention to be drawn to them first and foremost for their physical appearance. And again, I know that for some of you, this is the most challenging part of this text. Is Paul just being sexist and highlighting and saying, well, women need to be very careful about what they wear. Actually, I think the principle of this text applies to both sexes, and and men too can spend an awful lot of time trying to win the approval and praise of people by the cars that they drive, or by the wisdom that they proclaim, or even how they dress. But so can women. And just think about the amount of time, energy, purchases, and dedication goes into making sure that people think you look good. Whole industries have been developed to promote appearance. And again, I don't think that Paul is saying that we need to walk around homely or or no makeup on. But that becomes especially convicting if we are willing to spend far more time worried about what people are thinking of us than we are worried about what they are thinking about our Lord and Savior. And if the same effort was put forth in putting together our outside body and how we are appeared and and perceived by others and how the Lord is perceived when people look at us, we might be able to accomplish far more for his kingdom and for his glory. And so that is where the call is, to put your priorities where they belong. Instead of drawing our attention to ourselves, we point others to our Lord and Savior, dressing more in good character rather than worrying about dressing to impress. Well, after talking about women's apparel, Paul then turns to the role of women in public times of worship and prayer. And Paul calls for women to learn To learn quietly and with all submissiveness. And then he limits their role of authority in the church. And while we're going to address this issue more later on in the book. As it gets revisited on what it means to be a leader in the church. Paul does make the clear point that leadership in the church is reserved for men. 
And in opposition to those that might suggest, well, that was just for that time, at that day, in that culture, to support his point, he goes all the way back to creation and the fall, saying that Adam was created first and Eve sinned first. Again, I know very well that this is the most challenging part of the passage for some. Especially in today's world, we want to know, well, why? Why would God make that kind of a command and a decree? Because I don't know, and I don't understand, and I don't like it. But let me encourage you to be very careful with that kind of an approach. Be careful not to fall into the trap of that suggesting that unless the Bible's commands make sense to you, make sense to me, well, then I'm free to disregard or disobey them. It then puts you in the position of God saying that, God, if you're going to ask anything of my life, you've got to justify it and explain it and make sure that I agree with you or otherwise I'm just going to choose to ignore it or dismiss it. So we need to humble ourselves and listen and again wrestle with the truth of the text that is being proclaimed. The passage then ends with this really weird and oddly worded sentence in verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And it almost sounds like He's saying that there's a different path of salvation between men and women. That just by having babies, that's, a, that's how women are going to be redeemed. But I don't think that that's what's being talked here. And I was convinced by the argument that points out that odd transition between she at the start of the verse and they at the end of the verse. And I agree with those that see the she as referring to Eve. And saying that, following the description of, of what was going to happen after the fall, that their redemption would come through the seed, through the offspring of the woman, that it would eventually crush the serpent's head. And so in essence, this is a call or a, a pointing to Jesus Christ, who would be that only mediator, who would open that one path towards salvation and allow for his followers to continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And again, I highlight that because it points us back to the key idea of this whole passage. Especially based on all of the study that I did for this text. I am keenly aware that I have barely scratched the surface in much of what this text addresses and seeks to point out. And in it, there are a lot of challenging things, different parts that will challenge and convict and, and cause all of us to struggle. How and why and if and all of these things different to apply to today's world are challenging. But the heart of the chapter should be clear. Our deepest hope for the world should be the same heart that our God has for this world, that all people get to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. With that desire and hope, we should be praying fervently 
serving diligently and avoiding all things that might hinder or harm that goal. Anything that would hinder our relationship with the one God or compromise our testimony to others should be fought against and removed, striving with the Holy Spirit to live godly and dignified lives. We should always live in such a way that we have the greatest opportunity for other people to hear the message of hope that has changed us and to spread that hope and that message to a world that desperately needs to hear it but is looking for any opportunity to dismiss it, ignore it, or reject it. And so the prayer is that we would never hinder anybody's ability to hear the truth of the joy of what it means to give your life to Jesus Christ. And while that comes with sacrifice and challenge and difficulty, that should be our desire to serve the Lord so that when others look at us, they say, I want what they have. A relationship with the one true God and the peace and hope that comes with that. That is our aim. And toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we begin our, our prayer with praise. Thanking you for being that one true God. For revealing yourself and your will through your word. For loving us. And providing for us despite our sin. We continue our prayer of confession. Admitting that we don't like to surrender to the control of others, even you. And that we would rather do things our way than your ways. And we can all think of times where we have fallen short or sinned or rebelled against you. And this is why we thank you for the great gift of grace, for the hope we have in Jesus Christ, for the message that though we are sinners, we can find in you the one path toward reconciliation and redemption. Thank you for that gift. And now lead us in response. May the lives we lived be changed lives, reflecting properly the God that you are. May nothing we do hinder the ability for that message to go forth to others. And we pray that from us, from this church and its members, we would be light and salt to a world that needs to hear this message of hope as well. So we turn to you and we pray that your direction would live in all that we do so that others might see the hope that they can know and give their lives as we have. This we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.